It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Sims. This is episode 115 of Back From Hiatus Ramble. We do these ramble episodes every now and then where we don't focus on a single topic or set of ideas or works for the whole episode. We have uh, sort of several mini-episodes that are strung together. This conversation covered a lot of ground and, and went to a lot of different places. We talk about uh, the joys of large-scale collaborative music-making, and by large-scale, we mean very large-scale. We talk about how people will make music, will make good music, interesting music, no matter what their circumstances are, no matter how severe their material lack may be, and we listen to some music made in those situations. We talk about President Obama's playlists that he released at the end of the summer on Spotify. He released a couple of playlists, and we thought they gave us some interesting insight into uh, either what he or the team of people, what either what he thinks or the team of people who put it together want us to think about him. But we unpack that a little bit and have some fun talking about the picks that are on that playlist. Uh, it also led us into a conversation about how accessibility and authenticity have become uh, almost expected in our culture. How if there's a famous person or a notable person that uh, you, you like a lot or a fan of in some way, we're getting an expectation that that person's accessible to us. And, and they are more accessible, things like Twitter and the very fact that we have a presidential playlist was kind of mind-blowing to us, and we, we talk about all that and. Uh, and uh, chew on that a little bit. We talk about learning to appreciate finite runs of great creative work, continuing on a theme of uh, audience entitlement, senses of entitlement that have come about in the last few years. And uh, we talk a little bit about contemporary music journalism and some other stuff sprinkled in there, included with some great music excerpts in there for you to listen to also. Uh, I apologize for this episode taking so long to get posted. For those of you who are regular listeners, uh, we did take a a break over the summer, but it ended up being longer than we intended just because stuff happens and that's how it goes. But we are, the whole team is back on task. You'll notice uh, several new posts already up on the website at loosefilter.com. And uh, we've already got, I think, the next three episodes recorded, and we're just working on editing them, and then we've got uh, the plan going from there. So we're back with regular content, and to the listeners who did contact us after the hiatus went on a little too long and said, hey man, we want, we want more stuff, uh, we really appreciated that, actually, and it was the kind of kick in the behind that we needed to get back to making so if you like what you hear or or hate what you hear, uh, drop us a line at loosefilter at gmail.com and uh, let us hear from you. I think that's all I have to say to prep you for this one. It's a fun, meandering sort of conversation, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. This is episode 115, Back from Hiatus Ramble. I 
don't even know how to kind of get into this episode since we don't have a topic. This is just our back from hiatus episode. Just, hey guys, what's up? Uh, so after a very eventful summer, we I uh, should announce here at the top of this episode that Lisette Koninenberg is no longer a part of the Loose Filter team. Mm. She's no longer no longer going to be appearing on the podcast. Uh, in her place, we have Lisette Sims. Hi guys. Ooh. You'll notice they, that they sound a lot alike. Because they're the same person. Whoa, <laughs> whoa! That's just a theory. That was that was the big that was the big event of the summer that I, that Lisette and I got married. So that's pretty good news, right? Yeah. This episode, we just wanted to kind of do a uh, we're back sort of episode. We're just going to talk about a variety of topics, things that I caught over the summer that struck my fancy or that I wanted to share in case people hadn't hadn't found it. The theme that kind of unifies it, I think, is the way that music is such a great unifier. Like it's just an activity that all humans do that we've done as far as we know. And they're just great examples of how, at least three of them, of how music um, really brings people together and is such a joyful act. And how the internet and technology is such a powerful tool that allows us to really experience what's going on in so many different places that you, for many, many years, never would have had any idea. And now we have instant connection to Yeah. First thing that I wanted to talk about was something that just made me happy like for weeks after I read about it and, and heard it. And it's the uh, the thing that happened in Italy in the little town of Cesena in Italy. I'm sure a lot the of you listening. Thousand. The Rockin' Thousand. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm sure many of the the video has like almost 24 million views on YouTube. So a lot of you may have uh, been aware of this. It got, you know, it pinged around the various social medias and uh, 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 music websites in in if you don't know the story in Cesena Italy uh, a thousand people got together put together by a guy named uh, Fabio Zaffagnini uh, who had a dream to get a, a thousand people together to play a Foo Fighters song to try to get what a great dream to, to try to get the band to come to his town in Italy, where they would never go normally because it's it's not uh, that large, to come to his town and and bring some music and joy to to his town. Makes you think you heard of Mahler's Symphony of a Thousand. It was like that's great, but you know, it'd be even better a rock band, <laughs> a rock band of a thousand, and and he did it. It's pretty epic. I gotta hand it to him. It's pretty epic. It, it really is. So so he managed to. Uh, uh, in July, it happened on on my birthday. Actually, it happened on July 26th. They all got together on one Sunday afternoon in a park, and a thousand Just jammed it out from all over Italy. I mean, people drove out. You could you could look uh, like on Twitter and stuff. People were putting up uh, uh, messages and videos about how far they'd driven. You know, like early in the morning, gotten up at five in the morning to drive to get there. But uh, they put together this great video. Um, and so I just wanted to play a little bit of it. This is uh, this is the Foo Fighters tune, Learn to Fly, with the Foo Fighters Rockin' 1000 playing it.
So that's pretty. That's pretty amazing, I think. It turned out so coherent. It really, yeah, it, it sh- really does. It should be so muddy for so many reasons, and it's very clear. I'm, I'm quite impressed. So k- kudos to the the production to and audio team. engineer yeah. and yeah. that They're part doing of the something team. Very few people have ever tried ever to tried do, to do right. To right, figure it out. And that's a sound like I don't like what a weird sound, right? To, to hear so many people on those instruments playing it. But a, a few things struck me, and if you go, if you look on the uh, the where this episode is posted on the website itself at loosefilter.com, there'll be a link to the video. But if you just search on you know Foo Fighters Italy or whatever, the video will come up. But a, a, a few things really struck me about this when I was watching the video, and the first is just how damn happy everybody looks. They're so joyful. It's be, it's beautiful. Yeah, they're having a blast. They're having a blast. Those people are having one of the greatest days of their lives. That is one of the most fun, joyful, meaningful things they'll ever do. And another thing that struck me is this is a thousand people in Italy getting together to play a tune by an American rock band and sing in English, mm-hmm. which the ease of cross-cultural pollination and exchange that is just so common now like another obvious example would be Psy with Gangnam Style that just like nobody cared that the song was in Korean it sounded great those sounds were awesome had that hook and it had that That hook and and everybody wanted to listen to it over and over and the video was hilarious even though most of us didn't get the context didn't get the satire and all the stuff that was actually going on this is weird and awesome and I love it right and that hook it is pretty weird and awesome and I maybe love it (laughs) so Dave Grohl a day or two later posted a response video and uh, in Italian because he's awesome and they are going to go, the Foo Fighters, as soon as they can, you know, get it all arranged and so forth, are going to go to this little town and play a concert. So Mission it worked. accomplished. Yeah, and it's like at the end of the video, uh, if if you go and check it out, the guy who put it together uh, says he just every day for a year, this is what he did. And I thought, what an amazingly absurd and impractical dream to put a year of your life into and I just think that that's one of the most wonderful things I've heard in a long time, you know, because it is a, just a totally absurd and impractical and, and quixotic thing to go do. But those thousand people, like I said, that's, they'll talk about that for the rest of their lives. They will remember that. That will make them feel great. For, so, like, he actually created that gift for those people. And it became such a viral hit, too. It was such a success in so many right. different ways beyond just getting the band to even come and play the concert. It's like, wow. Really well, it's just awesome. awesome to see how much joy that it brought so many people. I mean, aside from them actually accomplishing what they were looking for there's so much benefit i mean so many people who weren't even there who just watched the video i've seen comments of people say like this is so beautiful and this reminds me of the beauty of music and it really brings to mind a lot of important things and i love that about this video other than it just being a super awesome thing a super awesome project and they actually accomplished it but i think it reminds us about something really powerful and that's we can all come together and do this together and it can be awesome and we should incorporate this in our lives the act of doing music making music yeah, enjoying the process fun. right and this is what people should get together by the thousands and make not like war and violence <laughs> and, and, and just like like how about we all get together and make music instead mm-hmm. that's way more awesome much more constructive much more constructive and much less deathy so if you haven't seen that video, not only did this guy, uh, Fabio Lafagnini, bring joy to those thousand people, like he brought it to me and you and he, like everybody who's watched it, like we all got to experience a piece of that vicariously. I just love it. 
So the next thing I had on my list to chat about was something I saw a post on Metafilter piqued my interest, but uh, uh, I've seen this pop up different places over the summer online, and it's about the homemade musicians, homemade uh, uh, music in Malawi, Africa, and how there's a tradition of building guitars and banjos out of found materials, and then just, you know, creating music from that. And I always find that interesting because it's fascinating to me the ways that music always finds a way no matter what's going on in your world how rich or how poor or how people will what, find a way to make music people people we need to music we need to yeah, with whatever materials are around you'll find something yeah. that will music and you'll do it with it excellent and yeah and and no matter how um limited or crude the means the instrument you have to make it yourself or whatever people are also going to figure out how to make great interesting music make it sound good and still. make it sound good still right no matter you like you know okay i've got some string and a drum and i can put a skin over it and i'm gonna have a one string guitar and okay so you think what can you got do? got a big rubber band what can you do with a one string guitar okay so listen to this Yeah, man, that's pretty awesome. It, it's very clear that it's not a typical instrument that you've heard before, and yet it makes very familiar sounds. And how basic are the materials of that song, right? All he's playing is one four, one five, one four, one five, one four, one five, a with a kick note, drum giving yeah. it a pulse. Yeah, and then, but it's just his voice and that melody is so engaging, right? After he plays that guitar groove a few times and the kick drum comes in, man, I'm already dancing before he starts singing. Yeah, it just works so well as a whole all together, the different little layers and parts he's able to create just by himself. Things like this are always my argument when I encounter in the academic world uh, when I feel like a sort of an a priori value is placed on complexity, that simple things are automatically simplistic. And I, I think even when distilled down to it's most bare bones essentials, right? One, four, and five, three notes, the most basic function in tonality, the most common the relationship in, 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 in tonality, and a pulse. Mm -hmm. And then the human voice. That's it. Just, just let's strip it down to its bare bones. And I still love that track. I, keep, I was listening to it every, you know, a couple of times a day for a while when I found it earlier this summer. I just kind of fell in love with it. They go, but it's not just that. It's not just that simple. They build all kind of banjos and guitars, and they have these banjo bands. And they play and sing an ensemble, and it sounds like this.
yeah, I enjoy the simplicity of it and how you're saying how a lot of people don't really value simplicity. They value more of the complexity. I always try and impress upon my students that if you can take a simple song and make it sound really good and actually get people engaged in it, that's the hardest thing of all. Because if you play some super complicated, anyone can watch that and be like, oh, yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> but if you can just you know write something like that that's so basic and so primal. You have and to be people expressive. people still get yeah. hooked into it. Like That takes a very passionate. special kind of musicality. Like you said, a lot of people assume that just because it's simple, it's therefore less good. Or facile or simplistic or stupid or yeah or, how can it be good look how basic it is or that it often what has to be made by somebody who can't think complexly i guess it just assumes something about the person who made it as well oh I yeah that's sometimes. true that's true there is um, a value judgment i guess about the person implicit in that yeah and and mm. i think that when you experience music like this it just goes to show that it doesn't matter how simple or complex the music is. What matter matters is the experience of the music. Is it something that evokes a reaction? Is it something that reaches out and connects with someone? And is Does it, it an authentic expression of the person making it? Yeah. I mean, you want to feel some sort of vivaciousness of whatever flavor in, in what's coming through in, in the music. And I think that's what matters so much more than necessarily the, the simplicity or complexity of the music itself. Yeah, I agree with that completely. That's what underpins for me probably all of the music that I love is that it comes from a sincere and honest place. Like there 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 is the person or people who created that music had really clear reasons why they thought those sounds should be made, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? They had something to say. They had something to express. Something specific. Something specific. And, and no matter what means, be it simple or complex or, or, or old or new or whatever, or whatever stylistic choices or sound world they used, you can always hear that. You can always sense when that's present. And there's certain musicians who even find a value in having to seek out that sound. Like we were talking about how he was just sort of finding the instruments and making music with them. And I know Jack White in the movie It Might Get Loud talks about this. He wants to feel like he's like caught a sound and killed it and skinned it. You know, he <laughs> goes for like the most right. cheap, like plasky guitar he could find and figure out a way to make it sound good and then toured his whole career with this like cheap little toy guitar. And then you have people like Tom Waits who'll just go into a studio and just start banging different things and be like what does this sound like when I hit it with a two by four? I kind of like that. Let's, let's throw that on the track. Well, this is all, that's all very, that's all very deeply American, right? The, from the American experimentalist tradition, that was John Cage and Harry Parch. And, and but I think th- they all gave culture. us permission to make sounds out of anything mm-hmm. in, in our, our, our particular culture. I think Go. every culture has a sense of that, that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bang something with sticks. I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, make something from make what I got, noise. you know, <laughs> See what sounds good. Keep what does. Throw out what doesn't. Right, and see what makes. See what people respond to. Also, I mean that's always a guide. Uh, have we talked this one out? The Malawian. Uh, but I think that's if that if that caught your fancy, search around online for just uh, 
banjo bands of Malawi or Malawi music. Or you, Now, be careful. You may stumble onto, I should say, some of the commercial pop music out of Malawi. It's not so and, and good. Yeah, you'll notice that we just didn't talk about that. So if you get that, that's not what we're sending you to. We're sending you to the uh, the folks who are who are making it themselves, who are home, home making it themselves, I should say. The folk music, not the pop music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, funny that pop music isn't folk music anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was the this one blew my mind. This blew my mind when this happened a few a couple of weeks ago. The president of the United States, through the official White House Spotify account. Okay, now hold on. Just that sentence. If you had sent it back ten years ago. And I could hear myself saying the sentence back when I first started the website, even and first started the podcast. So it wasn't not even before the Internet and before podcasts. Just when that fr- the president of the United States through the official White House Spotify account, I would think it was word salad. Yeah, it wouldn't even make sense because some of those words weren't even invented. <laughs> so, so, okay. What? The fact that all of you, I, I would assume all of you listening, understood what I said. Okay, that's the first part of what blows my mind. But the second part of what blows my mind is that the president of the United States released two hand-picked playlists on Spotify for anyone to enjoy and listen to. President mixtape. And I also <laughs> love... presidential mixtape. exactly what it is. Right. <laughs> and I love that it's day and night. So it's like, <laughs> right. it's themed. You got your party music, you got yeah. your chill music. You got your chill music. music. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, if you haven't seen this, go check it out. Because first of all, the playlists are excellent. That's, yeah, man. That's what I love second most about it, mm-hmm. is that they're really excellent playlists. He did a pretty good job, I gotta say. What? And I don't know how much I believe that it was all truly handpicked. Like, ultimately, yeah. it was all music he had to have at least enjoyed himself. But, well, but he, he and his wife, I think both uh, the president and Mrs. Obama have shown excellent taste in music given like who they've invited the White House to play and and things like that. Oh, yeah, that's uh, Questlove's like Twitter pictures, him and Obama. <laughs> so so I, I certainly I don't think it was just like a PR thing and like all the interns you know, had a whole conversation <laughs> Let's about get the temptations what, big what, again. Yeah, what would or what would pull the best with, you know, whatever. Because he did, well, first of all, he didn't have to worry about it, right? He's a second term president, so he's not running for elected office again. But more so it's like you can tell there is a person's musical taste in those playlists. Oh, personality yeah. to the choices. Not only that we're he- we're getting musical recommendations from the president of the United States. Okay, that's a little surreal, but <laughs> that they're good <laughs> is a little surreal. Like you said earlier, Lisette, I think this is the first president whose musical taste I would have been curious about. It was like I don't want to know what George Bush listened to, <laughs> Jimmy right? Carter, or, yeah. or Richard Nixon. I mean, like you know, but maybe I'm, Kennedy. I'm down yeah, to listen to some music with Obama or Eisenhower. You know? oh. <laughs> like, I don't care what Dwight Eisenhower's music. Just doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would have interesting musical taste. Uh, but Barack Obama does, and these playlists certainly demonstrate it. But but what I love about it is. Just like when you go over to anybody's house, well, I don't guess you can do it as much anymore. You used to be able to look through their albums or their CDs, and you look at their bookshelf, and you learn a lot. You get you get it. You can get a sense of person by Snapshot doing that. of their personality and their tastes. Right. We try to replicate it like on a social media page with likes or whatever, but it's it you know it's not the same. But a playlist 
that lets you into somebody's brain a little bit, I think. Yeah, and Anthony kind of brought up the mixtape aspect mm-hmm. of it. Like the tradition is when you give someone a mixtape, it's because you're like, hey, I'm interested and I want you to get to know me a little bit better. So the president's kind of like, hey, everybody, I want to get to know y'all a little bit better. I want you <laughs> right. to know me a little right. bit better. Right. Let's I, do this. I, I'm late term. I don't have to worry about Let's how shake this it up, polls. You guys. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Obama, how you doing? And well, and some of those songs on that playlist, it's like, you know, he wants to get down. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously somebody who likes to dance, put together those playlists. Right. And somebody I get the sense, somebody who is generally like an optimist who has a sunny disposition. There's a lot of good energy in those tracks. It's not a lot of angsty music and yeah. variety, too. There were some weird choices. Hold on. Let me pull up the playlist. OK. So you should go check these out. We don't, we're not going to go through the whole playlist, but uh, uh, it, it, it is on Spotify, and it's, it's The White House is the name of their account. And it's uh, Summer Day, Volume 1, Summer Day, Volume 2, Summer Night. So on Summer Day, you've got The Temptations, The Isley Brothers, Taleb Kweli and High Tech. That was nice. Early Taleb Kweli track. Uh, Bob Dylan, Tombstone Blues, some Bob Marley. Coldplay, that one was surprising that to was me. That was surprising. Uh, Mala Rodriguez. New to me. I didn't hit anybody heard her before. No. Nope. nope. Didn't know Howlin' Wolf. Uh, Stevie Wonder. That would be an, an awesome Stevie Wonder. Track, an, another star. Way. Yeah, right. another this, star. The, the closing track of Songs in the Key of Life and has a very Latin sort of feel to it. That was one thing, too. Like when he picked well known artists, he made really tasty choices mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. their kind of deep cut tracks, you know? Like only a real Stevie Wonder fan would know, would, That's a would good pick track that. Yeah. Uh, Sly and the Family Stone, Hot Fun in the Summertime. Uh, low cut Connie, uh, I thought was interesting. Nappy Roots, Good Day, great track. What a great pick. A uh, Justin Timberlake, right? You said one of the from tw- the twenty twenty experiences, yeah, one of the only well, tracks you like, Lissette. Yeah, I, was, I uh, really push your love girl. Like some Justin Timberlake, but that album was not my favorite of his. But that track, Push Your Love Girl, I do find very entertaining, and so I was very happy to see that he chose it. Um, and then uh, Sonora. Carusellas? I don't know that artist. Uh, La Salsa La Trego Yo. Great track, though. I listened to it. Uh, and then on the night one, uh, John Coltrane, Beyonce, and Frank Ocean. So you see a lot more of his jazz influence yeah. in the night one, for sure. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that Erica Badu, the last track, Woo, is the last track on the night, but it's a great recording. Yeah, the Lauren Hill and D'Angelo one is pretty pretty awesome, too. So it's it's a fascinating playlist, and, and uh, it gives you a sense of a person... Like, it's just, it's, uh, you can add it, you know, number 8 million to the list of ways that it's just fascinating now how we have a sense of famous and powerful people as people, not as their role. Mm-hmm. Like we, like we've never. Oh yeah, had. I mean we we have Reddit AMAs with President Obama. We have now his favorite music. We have tr- Twitter accounts where we can see his day to day life. It's become I mean, like, important to people camp- to feel Just, that. Yeah. yeah, to be able to feel like they are, there is an authentic person behind this celebrity, behind this you know face, and people want to really know that this is someone that I could get to know and that I would want to hang out with. Do you think that does that come out of because there is a thing in American culture uh, in the the very short introduction in music the uh, oh, the author's name just flew right out of my head I had it but he, Nicholas uh, oh, I'm gonna have to look it up I'll put the credit on the post but um, he made the point that in American music the idea of authenticity is 
is kind of is kind of unique to our culture. It's it's spread beyond uh, American culture specifically, but the idea that our musicians because popular music uh, is recording based and a lot of times the people recording the music also wrote it or or created it that that is from the the 50s from mid mid 20th century forward that that idea of authenticity is important when you think about uh, recorded music and music in the United States specifically. Oh, definitely. I think that that's sort of like. So, do you think this is like a natural kind of like outgrowth? I think of that's that, been a, like something that's been sort yeah. of a push and pull throughout the course of American popular music, and is like one of the most interesting topics you can even talk about because you started with, you know, the pop star who was singing a song that was written by a writer, was arranged by an arranger, and that was played by an orchestra, and they had no real connection to the music. Then you started seeing artists like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones come out and they're writing their own music and that changed the whole game and then all the way up to now you have people like Lana Del Rey who people are like is this a real personality is was this manufactured by a producer by the label and that's still a very forward thing in people's minds they think of these artists you know is this their art and it's such a peculiar thing right because does it matter Exactly. <laughs> if Lana Del Rey is a totally fictional creation by that one person, if she created the persona and the wrote the music and produced her and all that, or if it was a team of people and she was just a singer playing a role, or if that's authentically her or any other version of that, the music is still the music. Yeah, the music is the music. It's the artifact itself. Yeah, it's the same reason why we go to an artist like Lady Gaga and, and love Lady Gaga, even though we know there is no such person as Lady Gaga, but we but still love that but that's character. the reason a lot of people hate Lady Gaga. Exactly. Yeah, it's is because there's wide because it's a character. But with her there's this question of <clears throat> how much is this a put on? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you never know if it's satire. Quite. Exactly. And, and that's what I find is so interesting is that, about her. Would that be like post postmodernism? Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> you can't you, when you can't tell if something is earnest or parody, mm-hmm. right? This president I think has been more successful even than his predecessor and that was where George W. Bush like hit it out of the park. Was was in the seeming feeling the authentic, to, yeah, the factor. Uh, but this one, I think, has shown. I mean, he wrote two books about himself, so obviously he's not hiding, you know, hiding himself. But uh, through things like this, has has given us more accessibility to him as a person than we've ever had. His it's own kind of tastes, like what he's into, what he's interested in. And of course, you see it like with any artist you like. If they have a Twitter feed, if they have their own website, if they have things like that, and they'll respond to fans. You know, they'll respond to to, to tweets and things like that. So it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's really broken down the barrier between celebrities and fans. And for new media artists like people like John Green, you know, they have such direct access to their fans. It's crazy because they can just go read the comments on their videos and be like, "Hey," and <laughs> respond to them and take the yeah. feedback. <laughs> it's. I, I think it does make a big difference in terms of how you perceive of celebrities. There are definitely those celebrities that try to keep themselves very, very distant and disconnected from everything. And then you have a lot of artists who are very, very connected that respond to as much material as they can. And I do think that as we go on, that's going to create a bigger divide that if if you recognize the importance of engaging with the communities that support you you are far more likely to to prosper so you think that's going to be an undo withoutable ultimately i think right now no longer will it be this is just my job yeah i think i think for now we're still in a transition point but i do think that to at, at a certain point it's going to be one of those things where you can either acknowledge that we as people exist or you can just keep trying to be in a bubble 
you know, and not acknowledge anyone else, I guess. What I find interesting about this with musicians especially, though, is that there's been so many artists that the mystery and the intrigue of who they are has been a big part of it. Like when you have early Led Zeppelin and they're very much like mysticism and people not really yeah knowing who was making this what the ideas behind it were and that was a big part of the appeal for people is that there was a mystery to it and i think we're losing that with direct access to our artists and there's not really that mysterious sort of artist figure in music happening as much but i do think you can retain a, a sense of mystery about yourself as a person while still interacting with and acknowledging the community of fans you have around you. Do you think, Anthony, anything is lost by this connect and like I think Lissette's right. I mean I think I think the expectation continues to grow from fans that if they love a thing that the creators of that thing are accessible in some way. Yeah, they like being able to engage with it. And and I mean we see like I think a Dan Harmon, right, with community mm-hmm. and how much of the show and him as a person and the fans of the show know him as a person and listen to his podcast and engage with him on Twitter and and, and he he you know goes back yeah and he has so many you know, like deep flaws as a person right and his are demons to. are evident in the show and mm-hmm. and fans of the show know that and do you think that that is detrimental in any way I mean does it limit like did it limit like with community maybe like with that show did it limit it because it was so tied in the fans imagination to the person of Dan Harmon like it the year put, he got it, fired Whoever took it had no chance of success. Yeah, it puts expectations on it, and it makes people always associate the show with that creator, and it makes it hard for them to just look at the work as it, its own thing. And you kind of need to have both like sides. Like a work, qua you, work. I think it's very important to always know about the artist to really understand the work, but at the same time, it's good to be able to step back and not have to look at it in that light and think more of abstractly what is this work just trying to say. Well, and that was funny. I heard some, you would hear interviews with Vince Gilligan, uh, you know, when Breaking Bad was in its run, when it was on the air. And by everything I've seen, Vince Gilligan is a very affable guy. Very, he, like, he smiles a lot. He's always in a good mood. Yeah, he seems like and, a great guy. And he would get these questions about, like, is Walter White your alter ego? And are you working? Yeah. Like, you know, these, these the, dark thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> journalists would want to make these autobiographical connections or something. And, and Gilligan was always like, well... You know, n- n- no, it's a show. Like, we make He's it up. a character <laughs> I wrote. <laughs> that I'm writing with yeah. a group of people also, by the way. And, and, and we just imagine these people. <laughs> they don't, mm-hmm. like, like I wonder if there's something that we've, we've kind of lost because we've lost our ability to just take a work as a work, mm-hmm. as, as a thing people made up. And it's not always an extension of yourself. Sometimes it's just a product of your imagination. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't need to have that sort of more meta- psychological analysis of it of you know the mind state of the person making it sometimes that is important and it is a very important thing like smile you know we did a whole episode about that understanding brian wilson's ideas going into it is a huge part of it but other times it may not really have anything to do with the album and i think bob dylan is the best example of people always trying to put these ideas of what bob dylan was thinking and what he was going through in his life right. and how it affected his art and him well, just like, being like, like i'm just writing these crazy songs guys right like when he plugged in his guitar it was like you know he murdered everyone's parents or something <laughs> because like, nah, i just kind of like rock music yeah guys. yeah he yeah. was like i like i want to play electric guitar like yeah. this, like i want to do this now i did that i mean <laughs> i would have to imagine that for a lot of uh you know, certainly musicians, we see it. Um, I, I've experienced it. When you do something that is different than what people expect you to do, in your mind, it might just be 
you know, an easy choice. Like, I think I kind of want to do this now. You're just more interested in this other thing, so you just sort of do that thing. To you, it makes sense. To you, it makes head, sense. It's and your it's, own interest. Yeah, it's not dramatic, or there was no, you know, there's nothing. There's no deeper meaning to it. But, but to the people who have taken your work and it's personally meaningful to them, so connect, deeply. Yeah, they almost. It's almost like you know. Someone broke up with them like or rejected the, them in some way. They, they feel like the so artist personally. like owes them something because they made this work they love so much that they owe them this other album that's going to be like it and is going to fulfill all their expectations. It's very bizarre, I think, especially in in music in particular, that people do expect something that when all of a sudden an artist stops making whatever it is, that they make everyone will just go like why why are you stopping like people will have a a naturally negative reaction it's not even just like oh did you find something else that you wanted to do like what's going on it's like what no no you're supposed to keep making awesome things for me well do you remember the most dramatic example of this still i'll still see these conversations come up online and you guys may be too young to remember when this happened when Bill Watterson decided to quit drawing Calvin and Hobbes. You know, I was Hobbs. just thinking of Bill Watterson. <laughs> okay. He did, he did 10 years of one of the greatest bodies of work ever, in my opinion. Okay, so I'm just going to say now, I'm going to commit it to this episode, and I'm not going to edit it out, that we are going to do a podcast episode about Calvin and Hobbes. Yes. And why it is no audience for that. <laughs> amazingly genius. Okay. I don't think that it's been given proper critical consideration, honestly. Yeah, I, the, I do I not. I feel like the people know. And for I, sure, but I, there I hasn't think, been enough written about I it. I think the social themes and commentary in that strip become more relevant uh, as time goes on, not less. He was very incisive. Anyway, the point of the my, my alluding to this is that, of course, as I'm sure most of you listening know, uh, this enormously popular and and amazing comic strip at the end of 10 years, the, the creator, artist, writer, Bill Watterson said, I'm stopping the strip. I'm done. I've said what I have to say, and the production schedule, it's taxing, you know, being on that deadline all the time. And he said, I've just, I think it's finished. I've done what this is. And at the time, this was what, 98, late 90s, 98, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, I remember being very sad, very disappointed, very upset. But I personally never felt entitled to more. And I really respected that he was saying, no, I think I'm done with this and I'm not going to continue it past that point because it's going to be less good and I'll be doing it for the wrong reasons. And that just showed so much integrity to me uh, that even though I was very sad, it was, you know, that's what he decided to do. And I looked forward naively to what he would do next, which is mm-hmm. apparently stay home and paint. I read at the time and in, in, in the two or three years afterward, especially so many people were like personally angry. That they just felt almost how entitled. How could you do this? Yeah, yeah, how could you take this away from me? Mm-hmm. How dare you? Like, you're still alive. They felt, it, it was so meaningful to people that they felt entitled to keep getting it. Yeah, now we have, I think Game of Thrones is probably the best modern version of that, of people just feeling like, George R. R. Martin, you better finish these books or else. <laughs> We're all going to kill you if you die. <laughs> It's that kind of entitlement is fascinating. Yeah, but there's definitely a certain like dignity in being able to end an artwork on your terms. 
And just the other day, I actually watched um, LCD Sound Systems movie Shut Up and Play the Hits, which is him filming his very last concert as a band with LCD Sound System. He ended it after three albums when they were like at the top of their game, playing their best stuff. And he was like, all right, we're calling it quits. <laughs> and everyone was just like, but why? <laughs> Your music's like, so good. I, I'm done with that. Yeah. Yeah. And he got to end the band on his own terms. He got to put on the most awesome concert and like the best party and got to film it and create a movie around it and like philosophize around why he was ending it then and sort of like create a thesis around the whole idea. So he was just, he was very smart about how to keep it all intact without just letting the band sort of run off and become just another band that peters out. do think people are becoming more accustomed to that idea of like just get a limited run of a thing that's really good and that's the thing right because we got we got conditioned at least in the US culturally to never ending streams of what we like because it was revenue driven so if a sitcom was great it was going to stay on the air until it wasn't making any more money yeah for so 11 seasons the and then the 10th 11th season would be Awful. Awful. Yeah. Well, look at like The Simpsons. I mean, I'm not saying it's well, horrible, but it's gone on. For well, a it's while. certainly not on the air because TV shows don't usually stay on the air because they're good. They stay there on the they stay on the air because they make money. Because people are watching them. Right. Right. And it's we're lucky, frankly, with that model <laughs> that we ever get anything good because it's it's entirely revenue driven. And this is what uh, didn't we have this on our list, Anthony? We're talking about when Lisette made a burrito run. A little earlier. They were so good. They were <laughs> delicious. We have delicious taquerias here. Uh, about how Netflix... What was the oh, yeah, data point you cited? Netflix, by the end of this year, 2015, the amount of TV shows and just content that Netflix produces will be beyond any one specific TV channel that exists right now. So they basically, in the span of two to three years, have soared, have soared beyond all these actual tv channels to create more tv content it's crazy that happens so fast netflix man is just at the forefront of so much i think it's gonna be a big game changer one what's fascinating is for them revenue isn't driving content creation yeah it's important it's creative interest that it's been they're not as successful like monetarily as these tv channels like they're still making much less than someone like hbo would just because of the model and how it works but they're producing so much content and they're slowly changing the model just by sheer brute force by being at the forefront of this and they've influenced yahoo and amazon and hulu and all these other content creators that are now just saying we don't need the tv channels to make these shows anymore because we can just find the talent and 
kind of do it better a lot of the times. Well, and we've discovered that there, there, it's not a lack of talent or ideas. There are a lot of great ideas for shows and great writers and great actors and great directors. It's just that there's a bottleneck when you have a revenue, revenue and broadcast-based model. And when, when you have to get 10 million viewers yeah, when it has to, to be, be a successful, hit. yeah, for, for it to be financially worthwhile. But I also think another big thing about Netflix is that, the, is that they make it accessible. They make it affordable. A lot of, like, if you want to watch something, you have to pay money for cable or for a satellite or whatever right. system. Netflix is eight bucks Netflix, a month. Plus your internet. You can get through, but you can get it through like any kind of, of multiple system. devices. And, yeah. yeah. You and can, you're getting so much content for such a small amount of money. Yeah. yeah so many devices. It's actually allowing them to make shows. We, we can't really call them TV shows properly, I guess anymore. Right. <laughs> shows that uh, with an eye toward, you know, giving a unique uh, creative person, a writer or a director, giving their vision just because they think it's interesting. What's his Ted Santos? I think is head of programming for him. Just picking shows that look interesting that mm-hmm. they want to do because they like the I remember what they said about the fourth season of Arrested Development. Right. One of the greatest TV shows ever. Certainly one of the greatest sitcoms ever. And he said it was just they wanted to see a fourth season of Arrested Development personally because they were fans of the show was as big a factor in their decision as any sort of demographics or financial projections or anything like that. That we're getting content now shows that just were unimaginable a few years ago. Yeah, I think that's where... And music and, you know, all Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, that's where FX and AMC have really excelled joining the game kind of later is that they got the creative side like Netflix does. They understood that you bring in these talented writers and you sort of just let them, you know, run free and let them do what they want. They're going to create something really cool if you pick the right people and put the right team together. Well, and it is the rise of the auteur, right? The showrunner. We're in the era of the showrunner. So they they pick somebody and they trust them to develop a show and build a writer's room and assemble a production team. you really can feel their voice ringing through all of it. And viewers are getting more savvy. They're following showrunners from show to show. So I think like a lot of Buffy fans followed Steve tonight to Spartacus and they followed him to Daredevil right he's on Daredevil now which he's is one of the awesome. producers on Daredevil I'm saying awesome a lot on this podcast. and so and like but Dan this Harmon awesome podcast. Dan Harmon got a fan base because of community but his fan base a lot of it now is Dan Harmon based yeah which extends now Rick and Morty it, well yeah sure with with Justin Royal and Rick and Morty one of the best shows currently being oh, made if you haven't watched Rick and Morty uh, but you were saying networks getting in on great original content. I love that uh, USA, home of really terrific B-grade content. Mm-hmm. And I say that not as an insult at all, because I have watched many episodes of Psych and and have enjoyed it tremendously. Mm-hmm. Oh, I watched Monk uh, the entire time. Oh, it was yeah. On. Yeah. I mean, great BTV uh, is great. But they have, are producing Mr. Robot. Which, which is if you one haven't of my seen favorite Mr. shows Robot, on right now. I can't, there are things in, that epi- in, in episodes of that show that I, I can't believe that this is a TV show. I can't believe this is made. It's the so tone, cinematic. The pace, the brilliance of the visual storytelling, and that it's USA. It's a basic cable network that has got uh, Sam um, Esmail. Is that the mm-hmm. show? Uh, yeah. is, is the, again, another kind of showrunner-based show. Somehow we're talking about TV shows now. <laughs> cool. What else did we want to talk about? You you wanted to talk about Pitchfork. Yeah, Anthony. just this happened just today. Um, Pitchfork released their list of the top 200 songs of the 80s. And I've been a very, very long-time Pitchfork reader. I've been reading Pitchfork for like seven or eight years. And I find them to be very interesting when I try and explain to people who don't read it. 
I say it, they're kind of like the most modern equivalent we have to what Rolling Stones was throughout like the 60s and 70s and that regardless of how much you agree with their reviews or their taste or their politics, they're very much influencing the music game just in what people are listening to, what people are being exposed to. They're like, they're tastemakers. It's, it's, yeah. it's a native website, right? Yep, yeah, it started as a website just by this guy, Ryan Schreiber, who just really was into indie music and just started this really kind of weird, like, do-it-yourself kind of website. And they wrote lots of strange concept reviews and were just very, like, almost juvenile and strange when they started out, which I always enjoyed about it. And they've very slowly kind of shifted to being almost like pop evangelists now. They're very much pushing for pop artists, and not necessarily like the biggest pop artists, but people sort of more in the middle, like Miguel or like when The weekend was coming up. Those sorts of artists. James Blake, exactly. So they've always had a very interesting like reach and different stuff they've been into. Yeah, I, I'm a pitchfork reader, not as long, but I kind of feel the same way that I can totally understand that I don't always agree with the opinions on that site, but I do think the content they decide to talk about is the kind of content I want to hear about. Mm-hmm, for and, sure. And so I do like going there to see like what is new, what is out there, what could I be listening to. And and like you said, it's not always about agreeing with what they have to say about it, but it's they have um, they've really stepped forward as um, really the place to go to if you want to find out what is new and interesting. And in so, music. like some examples, you know, of artists that people have said have gotten the pitchfork bump, as I said, you know, Arcade Fire was one of the first big ones. They gave like a nine point six to their first album, and then I think Animal Collective seemed like one that really received a lot of influence and. Who's the other one? Um, like Grizzly Bear or just lots of like late, like 2005, 2010 type artists when they kind of had their most reach and range. Late oddies. Exactly. But what I find interesting about their list specifically is that it's more about canon building and trying to build a canon that goes sort of contrary to like the typical rock canon that we've created of the idea of like, you know, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan is the most important music that's ever been made, and everything needs to be thought of in reference to this core group of artists in this one specific time period in this one place. You know, so I feel like they're trying to fight against that a little bit, which I appreciate, and sort of trying to find a more broad context. So let's look at, I think they're the top 10 is the most interesting to look at. So in the top 10, we have a lot of stuff by. Uh, like Michael Jackson. This Prince. is their top 10, what? Uh, so the top 10 songs of the 80s. So number one is Purple Rain by Prince, which I find interesting. They went for Purple Rain and not When Doves Cry, the more obvious, like, big pop song. I, that I find that an interesting number I would have gone for When Doves Cry. I think I think if Dave were on this episode, he would, he would support Purple Rain as the choice. <laughs> <laughs> Word. I really like the number two pick because it's um, Want to Be Starting Something by Michael Jackson. The opening, a great track. Opening track yeah. of Thriller. I think, I think that's held up better than any song on that album, personally. I think that one is just ageless and is just so funky and danceable and awesome. And then number three, we got Straight Outta Compton, NWA. Right. So it's very much they're very much uh promoting like how important hip-hop is i feel like they've been very on the forefront of like showing the value of how hip-hop has been the dominant pop music form for you know yeah they do a lot a lot of hip-hop stuff on there which Mm -hmm. is kind of weird because you wouldn't think so there's a kind of almost like a hipster hip-hop 
like kind of faction that's come about it's very interesting oh yeah and then number four is new orders blue monday which is (laughs) interesting choice yeah and they talk about how it was just like such a random so many pouty skater kids in high school listen to (laughs) new order well, yeah, New Order, because it's because yeah. of Joy Division, you know, more so that was the more pouty version of New oh, Order. Yeah. And number five is Public Enemies Fight the Power, yeah. which is oh, definitely a great choice. So, yeah, they're very much trying to build this new canon that's heavier on, like, popular hip-hop and popular, like, black what popular artists. What truly influenced culture. Exactly, yeah. It's like... You don't see Bruce Springsteen in the top 10, you know, even though Bruce Springsteen was a very important influential music musician in the 80s. It was more of well, not like the forefront of what was being done musically at that time. Well, and there, uh, there are kind of three ways to look at it, I think. Well, well two ways and a hybrid. Like there's, there are musicians who are popular there are mu- there or music. Let's say let's look at the works there. There's music that's popular. There's music that's influential. Sometimes in a Venn diagram, those overlap, but a lot of times they don't. Yeah, what's influential is going to be what the musicians listen to. Yeah. That's what's going to continue to influence exactly. the music that comes after it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, though a lot of people, certainly there's a lot of pitchfork back, backlash and a lot of, mm-hmm. as, as the when the site blew up, there's a lot of sort of questioning of how decisions are made. And, a lot of people don't know, like what's it. What's motivating, what yeah. gets on what list. But I do, like you're saying, I, I do appreciate that they try to find the overlap in that Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. So when you're establishing a canon, obscurity is a difficult sell. Yeah. Uh, because part of what makes something canonic is that it was widely... That it left a mark. ...experienced. You know? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that it's a cultural touchstone, a reference point in some way. Yeah, so that means there's people who listened to it and loved it enough to continue to talk about it 30 years after the fact in 2015, you know? I do appreciate those early hip-hop tracks being on that because that music is not in the historical narrative that's come up <clears throat> as recognized as it should be because, mm-hmm. and you're right, the framing continued to be that somehow rock music is still the basis of pop music, and I think that's what changed in the 80s, is that hip-hop became the basis stylistically mm-hmm. for pop music rather than rock, and I don't know that that story is maybe told Well, and now enough. hip-hop and pop and rock are all in bed with each well, other. Well, of course, ev- yeah, everything's having babies with everything yeah. <laughs> um, because of, you know, because the internet. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, anything else on our, on our list that we wanted to chat about? Did we cover everything? Is this, we've been rambling so. for a while. <laughs> a pretty good ramble. Pretty good. Um, just one thing that my summer has taught me, I, I guess I just want to share with everybody out there, and I think y'all could agree with me based on, from what I've heard of your summers, is that as much as you can, make music with people around you and in your communities and try to be involved in community performing arts organizations to whatever extent your community has them because they're very enriching for any level, whether you're a staff, counselor, camper in a camp organization, if you're doing some sort of community theater project, part of a cast, part of a crew, do something creative. Go out there and make make art. It's Sing in really, the shower. It's very satisfying. <laughs> Sing in the car. Do the thing. Anything. Do the thing. Because it's truly fulfilling in ways that you can't really describe. You have to you have to experience it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, more great episodes coming up. We are back in production with the podcast. If you have uh, any comments, feedback, things you want to hear us talk about, shoot us a line at loosefilter at gmail.com. And uh, if you're listening to this episode, you know one of the places to find us online, iTunes, SoundCloud, or loosefilter.com. I think I said the email address wrong, did I? Loosefilter at gmail.com. So, or online, uh, the main websites at loosefilter.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.